and welcome to the Media Law Podcast Newscast with me, Colette Allen. This week, I'm joined by Tom, and we will be discussing the current law around revenge porn, triggered by the Daily Mail's release of the Katie Hill nudes that led to her resignation from Congress. We will also cover the broadcasting rules around the election that will come into play once Parliament dissolves later this week for the upcoming election. But first, I want to briefly discuss my favourite day in English history, the Twitter feud between Colleen Rudy and Rebecca Vardy, a.k.a the Wagatha Christie saga. Tom, there isn't really much legally to discuss here, is there? The Sun can't be liable for printing stories they allegedly received about Colleen Rooley from Rebecca Vardy's account because, one, they don't really amount to a breach of privacy, and two, there isn't any obligation on newspapers to make sure that their sources are giving up information with the consent of the subject. Am I right? Essentially, yes. If um, there is nothing particularly private about the information that's obtained, then there isn't a misuse of private information claim. Now, I confess I've not I've not studied particularly closely the actual stories that were run um, by The Sun from Colleen Rooney's account. Um, it was all to do with flooding a basement and Colleen Rooney's return to TV. It, so it was all quite trivial. Yeah, <laughs> I suspect that it was going to be pretty trivial stuff because the it's not like the objections to publishing it have been terribly vociferous from her. Um, so you, you're right that this is not really, on the face of it, a privacy matter. Um, what it might be is a defamation matter. Um, but this is this is this is pure speculation on my part. But here would be the issue. Colleen Rooney uh, says that she worked out the source of these stories by posting a fake story on her Instagram account in such a way that only Rebecca Vardy had access to it. And then when it appeared in the uh, Sun. Um, the source was obviously Vardy, um, in Rooney's view. Now, she says that she's looked into this um, with the aid of some IT consultants who've helped trace the accessing to Vardy's Instagram account. Um, it, it, it immediately occurs to me that there are three possible sources of the information. One is, as Rooney says... Vardy acting in this untoward fashion of which she's been accused of acting. Um, the other is that Rooney's account itself was compromised. And the third is that Vardy's account was compromised. Now, it's plausible to at least investigate that, uh, whether they've been compromised, in no small part because the British tabloids, frankly, have got form when it comes to hacking people's personal accounts, both email and electronic communications, as well as um, mobile phone accounts. So, if, as Rooney alleges, the source of this was Vardy acting in an untoward fashion, then obviously there's no defamation claim. But if what happened was a result of either of their accounts being compromised, then the accusations which Rooney has very publicly levelled at Vardy, could well be libelous. Um, and you know, if I were uh, Rooney's legal advisor, I would have uh, advised her either not to say uh, what she said about Vardy, or um, 
to be absolutely certain that there was no possibility the accounts had been compromised maliciously by a third party. Um, and I do note that Vardy has denied the accusations immediately and strenuously. So uh, time will tell whether this ends up playing out uh, in the courts as a libel claim, but um, it's certainly a plausible scenario, and if uh, I were looking to set an exam question for students on defamation, this would be a fun one to set this year. Right, absolutely. Um, So just briefly then, you can actually have a a defamatory statement made on Twitter, because sometimes Twitter isn't subject to the same publication laws. So it would be considered publishing the defamatory statement if it was just a tweet. Yes, right. absolutely. You can have a defamatory statement that is short and to the point. Uh, it doesn't matter the medium in which um, it's published. There are, uh, I mean, the courts have said that there are circumstances in which, say, a tweet or a Facebook message that is ambiguous in its meaning um, will be interpreted in a less serious fashion because of the transitory way in which people engage with tweets. But what Rooney said was absolutely explicit mm. in its accusation um, of uh, misconduct on, on Vardy's part. So, yes, that could certainly be uh, defamatory. Well, if it plays out in the courts, that just adds to the excitement, in my humble opinion. It, it does. <laughs> we'll have the second best day in English Great. history. Can't wait. Can't wait for the sequel. Okay, should we move on to uh, the Katie Hill story? Yes. So this is a US congresswoman who had to resign last week because her ex-husband uploaded pictures of a consensual three-way that Hill had participated in with a woman who was also on her campaign staff. These pictures were uploaded online and in her resignation speech, Hill vowed to dedicate her career to tackling revenge porn and getting justice for victims. The Daily Mail stuck its nose in when it shared photos on its website last week. The incident presents itself as a good opportunity to discuss how the current law seeks to address incidents of revenge porn. So, Tom, if we just start basically, does current UK law handle this as a civil or a criminal matter? Well, that depends on who the defendant is. So in terms of the ex-husband, UK law would regard this as both civil and criminal matter. Um, in, in, In 2015 the uh, law was amended to create a criminal offence of revenge pornography, which is the sharing non-consensually of uh, explicit photographs and or video um, showing sexual activity or showing a person's genitalia. Um, So that could well be a criminal offence on the part of the ex-husband, Now, I very much doubt the UK authorities will get involved in that because uh, all the indications are that the material was uploaded from the United States to a US-based website. Right. So whilst it was accessible in this country, um, there are revenge porn laws in different states in the United States, not across Mm. the US, I don't think, but in, in, in some states. And I suspect that any criminal sanction that is pursued will be pursued stateside. Um, there are civil measures that can be taken in the UK 
um, conceivably also against the ex-husband, but for the same jurisdictional reasons, I suspect they won't be. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, certainly against the uh, Daily Mail. The Daily Mail has uploaded itself some, but not all of the photographs to its uh, website, um, and they are still there. Um, I had not actually read the story in all its gory detail until yesterday when I was um, thinking about this podcast. So I went to see what was still there. Um, The most explicit of the photographs that is uh, uploaded by the Daily Mail is censored in all the places that it needs to be censored if it is to avoid uh, liability for revenge pornography um, under the British statute. Um, But there are still potential claims both for misuse of private information um, because, frankly, only very little is left to the imagination. Some of these photographs and others show intimate-ish moments, even if not explicit ones. Um, uh, And also, um, there is the possibility of a libel claim, uh, and that revolves around um, the... Daily Mail's assertion in no, in, in not too subtle terms um, that uh, a tattoo visible um, uh, on Katie Hill um, has Nazi connotations. Now, uh, it is a tattoo of an, uh, an, an iron cross, um, which is a symbol that was used by the Nazis, but it was used by the Nazis... Um, uh, it was adopted by the Nazis. It wasn't created by the Nazis. Uh, and when it is associated with Nazism, um, neo-Nazism, the extreme right, it tends to feature additionally a swastika, right? Um, which it does not on Katie Hill. So uh, the Daily Mail does in a uh, a, a small paragraph uh, have a quote um uh, from another organization, I forget which one, um, making clear that actually uh, this isn't just, this isn't simply a Nazi symbol. It's a symbol that was adopted by the Nazis and then adapted right. um, by them. Um, and so it's not really a Nazi symbol at all. But that's far less uh, entertaining than splashing the word Nazi around the rest of the article, which they do quite liberally. Right. So, I mean, beyond this specific instance, do you think that the current UK law, and I know this is obviously going to be handled in America, but it it raises questions. Do you think that the current UK law around revenge porn as um, made into statute in 2015 is doing the job properly? Well, the cop-out answer that I'm going to have to give you is we just don't know yet. Um, In legal terms, the statute is still very much in its infancy. Um, we haven't had enough incidents going to prosecution for us to really know whether it's um, uh, whether it does provide an effective remedy uh, in, in these circumstances, um, and we would need much more data on the incidence of um, revenge pornography before and the whether the numbers of incidents of revenge pornography have gone up or down after the statute per capita we'd need to know that um before we could 
really assess the impact of the statute. But um, what I can say is that it's a change that was lobbied for for a very long time. Um, Mostly it is a statute that um, protects women from the actions of men because, let's face it, 99% of uh, incidents of revenge pornography are perpetrated by men against women. Um, And it is certainly a step in the right direction, both in terms of protecting uh, women from a a particularly pernicious um, form of abuse by men, and more generally in terms of protecting the privacy of those individuals because it's another tool in the arsenal um, against uh, the old we've got a naked picture, let's publish it uh, gag, which, of course, the tabloids have been playing with for decades. Well, that's all very interesting, but I think for the sake of time, we should also move on to the current broadcasting rules um, in light of the upcoming election. Tom, could you briefly outline how this is going to affect coverage of the election in the upcoming weeks and why it's important that these laws are in place? Okay, so uh, when there is uh, an election or indeed a referendum, um, uh, when the election period is on, then certain broadcasting rules kick into place. Now, they're contained in a number of different statutes, um, but... The important thing uh, is that they are codified nicely in Section 6 of Ofcom's Broadcasting Code. And essentially, this requires the broadcast media, i.e. television and radio, um, to uh, be impartial in their coverage of political parties and their policies during the election period. That will start with the dissolution of Parliament later this week and run up until polling day. Um, So it's not permitted, for instance, to have um, people who are standing for election as presenters on shows. Um, In fact, we've just seen, although he is apparently not going to stand as a candidate himself, um, Nigel Farage is uh, not going to be presenting on the LBC radio show that he normally hosts for the period of the election because he's going to be taking a very prominent role in the campaign of the Brexit party. Um, It's not permitted to have representatives as guests on a show or commentators from one party standing for election without also inviting uh, equivalent standing members from others. Um, And the broadcast media companies must have due regard to the need um, for balance in their coverage. Um, This does not mean that every single political party needs to be given equal airtime. Um, But what it does mean is that parties should be given a level of airtime broadly commensurate with their standing. Um, So you will see the major parties given broadly equivalent airtime, i.e. the Conservative and Labour Party. Um, And then media companies have some discretion um, to determine how much coverage to give to smaller parties. 
Um, but ultimately, Ofcom will be the arbiter of whether they make that call correctly. Now, this doesn't apply, and it will be immediately obvious once the election begins, if it isn't already, um, that it doesn't apply to the print media, and that does not apply online to social media. Why does it not apply to the print? Um, um, essentially, um, because it would require statute to impose such a law um, requiring the print media to be balanced in their coverage, and the print media will um, campaign vociferously against any party that threatens to do it. Um, one gets into government through having the support of the print media, at least that's how it very much used to work until the mid to late 2000s. Really, social media has only kicked in in the last 10 years as a real driver of electoral success. So before then, um, you know, it's always the sun what won it, as was the, the, the headline in uh, 1992. Um, so, yeah, the tabloid media just utterly opposed to any form of statutory interference with um, their content and they have an unfair influence over the law clearly oh well the tabloid media have always had a very considerable influence over the law and it's a matter of uh, some debate as to whether that's ever been that power has ever been exercised terribly responsibly um but that's for another day right Okay, well, thank you very much. Um, I think that's all we have time for today. But as ever, please follow us on Twitter at Media Law Podcast and tweet us with any questions you'd like us to cover in Newscast. Thank you for listening. I'm Colette Allen. Thank you to Tom. Bye. Bye. Bye.